And let me just encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open it to the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 3, that is where we are going to spend our time this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to do something that we did a few weeks ago. If you remember, we did a little word association a couple weeks back, and I asked you a question and you would respond with an answer. And so today, uh, we're, we're going to talk. I'm going to present to you the name of a company or of an organization, and I would like you to tell me who you think, whose name, a person whose name comes to mind when you think of that company. That person may or may not be in charge of that company or that organization. Now that person may or may not be alive. But I, I just love for us to to think for a moment. Who comes to your mind? Some of these are going to be easy. Some of these are going to be more difficult. And as I was going through this, I realized these are all a little bit slanted toward men who look like me. And I apologize about that. It's just not, the, not overweight fat men with beards, but never mind. When, when you hear Amazon, whose name comes to your mind? Jeff Bezos, right? We could also say the Washington Post because it's the same guy. Uh, Apple. Apple computers, Steve Jobs, or you might also think of Tim Cook, who's now leading the company, Microsoft, Bill Gates, Bill Gates, right? Oh, this will be for you younger ones, all right? Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, that's right. Oh, this, this is near and dear to my heart. Tesla, who comes to your mind when you hear Tesla? Elon Musk, or if you thought about uh, SpaceX, that would be that guy. Um, the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, who comes to your mind? Joe Gibbs. Okay. We might also think of Dan Snyder or might not want to think of, or some people might think of Jack Kent Cook who, who owned the, owned the, uh, Redskins for a very long time. Of course you can't have the Redskins without the cow. I mean the Washington football team without the Cowboys who comes to your mind when you think of them. Okay. Jerry Jones, some people, you think, I don't want to think anything about the Cowboys, and that's fine. Okay, so let's get away from that type of stuff. Let's think about some religious organizations. If you hear the name Willow Creek Community Church, whose name comes to your mind? You might not even know. Bill Hybels, Bill Hybels, yeah. Or here's another big church, Saddleback Community Church. Whose name comes to your mind then? Rick Warren, exactly, the guy who wrote uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Here's another one, and there's a, a theme here, Grace Community Church. Whose name comes to your mind there? John MacArthur, John MacArthur. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose name might come to your mind? Joseph Smith, good. Or Christian Science. Mary Baker Eddy, Mary Baker Eddy. All right, let's take another bigger jump. When you hear about Islam, who comes to your mind? Bobby comes to your mind. Or we might think of Muhammad, right? When you think of Christianity, who comes to your mind? Jesus. When you think of Judaism, who comes to your mind? God. Okay. I was thinking Moses. 
Because that's who we're going to talk about today. We're going to actually talk about Jesus and Moses together because really Moses was the one who received the messages from God and wrote it down into the commandments that became the covenant for, for the people of Israel. Now, each of these individuals are known because of the organizations or movements that they led. And, and as I said, today we're going to think about Jesus and Moses because the people that, that the, the writer of Hebrews was writing to were, were primarily Jewish background believers. They were Jews by heritage, but they had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And yet because of persecution from, from other Jews and persecution from, from really other political places, they were being pushed back into believing the things that they had left behind. They, had been, they were being pushed back and, and really were, were working... Um, we're being tempted to be drawn back into the old covenant when Jesus had fulfilled all that. So today, as we consider this, what, what the writer of Hebrews is really saying is, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's greater than Moses in several ways. And so we're going to look at that today. And as we go through this, we're, I, I, I'm really grateful for the work of Warren Wiersbe and Michael Kruger. This, as the work that we're looking at is, is based from their outlines. But the, so the opening premise that, that the writer of Hebrews is getting at is that Jesus is greater than Moses. And we can see in the first couple of verses that Jesus is greater in his person. Jesus is greater than Moses in his person. Look at what it says in Hebrews 3, 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You see, the writer of Hebrews, he speaks highly of both Jesus and Moses. He acknowledges that they were both faithful to the work that God had called them to. You see, Moses had led the people of Israel for over 40 years into the wilderness. He had got them right to the gate of the promised land. And while Jesus' earthly ministry was much shorter, he is continuing to fulfill the work that God had called him to. In fact, today in Kids Connection, the children are considering the question, question number 51 in the New City Catechism, and that is, of what advantage is Christ's ascension? And the answer that they're learning is about what Jesus is doing now. Christ is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father and also sends us his Spirit. And so the kids are, are learning that Jesus is still faithfully serving. Moses only had 40, 50, 60 years. Jesus has now been serving for all eternity. Eternity past and on into eternity future. They were both faithful. But one of the big things that the writer of Hebrews notes is that Jesus was not just faithful like Moses. But Jesus is greater because of who he is. As we read that passage, did you notice the two titles that the writer gives to Jesus? He gives them two titles. One is apostle and the second is high priest. And several commentators have noted that these are very different roles. 
In fact, their, their audience is in completely different directions, and yet Jesus faithfully fulfills these. As apostle, Jesus is sent out to represent God to humanity. We might think about that like an ambassador. An ambassador goes from one country to another country on behalf of, of that country's leadership to, to show the goodness, to show the grace, to show the policies of that country. Well, Jesus, as an apostle, really we might think of him as being the very first apostle, was sent out from heaven to represent God to humanity. He revealed to us who God is and what he is like. He demonstrated the character of love and grace that are a part of God. But the writer also noticed that, notes that Jesus has this title of high priest. In this role, Jesus represents not God to humanity, but humanity to God. You see, in the Old Testament, a regular high priest would, would regularly, a regular priest rather, not the high priest, but a regular priest would, would, would systematically and, and continually go before God on behalf of the people as an intermediary. And he would offer sacrifices and he would do all these things. And then the high priest was given a, a very special job to, to really encourage the, the people of the covenant to keep that covenant. He was given a special job to ensure that the covenant was being followed. And then, once a year, that high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, on behalf of the people of God, in order to pray for God's atonement, to pray for His forgiveness. And Jesus, as the high priest, is able to fulfill that. He doesn't have to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He has direct access to God. So he, being our high priest, is always continually interceding on our behalf. He is there before the throne of God, representing us to God. Because he has perfectly fulfilled our covenant requirements, he, directs, he, he gives us direct access to God as well. And so in these roles, Jesus goes both ways. He represents God to humanity. He represents humanity to God. And in a sense, you could say, well, Moses kind of did the same thing. He was called out by God to speak. He was a sort of a, apostle. But he was also, and he was also considered sort of a priest in that he, he went before God on behalf of the people. But really his brother Aaron was given the title, given the job, of priest. And being a fallen human, Moses cannot represent God the way that Jesus does. And he also cannot mediate the way that Jesus does. And so Jesus is greater in his person than who Moses than than Moses. But not only that, we see that Jesus is greater in his ministry. Look at the next three verses in Hebrews three, verses three through six. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, just as the CEO or founder, founder of a company would have more acclaim than a manager would, so too, because the ministry of Jesus is over the house, 
His, he is greater than Moses, whose ministry was within the house. The house that the writer is referring to here is really the house of God's people. And I, I think you and I are a part of that if we have received by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what he did on the cross. But Moses, he came from among the people in order to manage or, or steward the house. And he was faithful to accomplish the thing that God had given him. And we saw over the last couple of weeks how Jesus' supremacy stems from part of his creative work in the world. Jesus is, is creator of the house. He is greater than Moses because his work extends far beyond that which Moses could ever do. And there is no way that Moses, as great as he was, could have reached the reach that Jesus can. And I think this is part of the argument that the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Keep in mind, these, these Jewish background believers were, being, were, were, were facing persecution. They were facing doubt and skepticism from their friends, from their relatives, from people saying, hey, come on back. You wouldn't have all this problem if you would just obey the old covenant like we do. And so the writer is encouraging them, hey, don't go back. Jesus is greater. He has fulfilled everything that Moses promised. He has fulfilled everything that Moses called us to do. And so the writer's point up to this point in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is God incarnate. We saw that two weeks ago when we considered the first uh, three verses of the book. And then last week we saw that Jesus is greater than the angels who gave the message to Moses. And so today we're seeing that Jesus is now greater than Moses himself because of his person, because of his ministry. But there is one other way that the writer points out one other way that Jesus is greater, and that is in the rest that he provides. Jesus is greater in his rest. And Brian read about that a, a few moments ago. You see, Moses became well known initially because he led the people out of Israel, or led the people of Israel out of Egypt. You see, they were enslaved in Egypt, and they got comfortable there. They were just like, I don't like this. This isn't where I should be, but this is the life I know. They had been there a few hundred years. They were comfortable. And in some ways, they reluctantly, reluctantly followed Moses out of Egypt toward the promised land. And yet I wonder how often do we get that way, settling for the second best here when we could be waiting, enduring patiently, for the promises that God has for us in the future. When we, when we get our eyes off of what God is doing and onto the present circumstances now. Even as the people escaped from Egypt and saw God work wonderful miracles, they rebelled and turned away from God. And in return, God allowed a whole generation to pass in the wilderness, leaving the promised land to their heirs. The writer of Hebrews refers multiple times back to Psalm 95. In fact, if you want to write in, in your notes or want to write in, uh, in your Bibles, he's referencing Psalm 95 here. And we're going to look at a couple other passages that he, he looks back to. As he calls us to learn from the mistakes of the past, not to forfeit the promised rest in lieu of what we might call a catnap now. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. 
on that day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Over the course of the remainder of the passage that we're looking at today from chapter 3, verse 7, all all the way through most of chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews reiterates and re-quotes that psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In fact, he says it three times in those passages, which, which remember, if something is written once, we need to pay attention to it twice. We probably better take a second look. Three times, we really better do what he's calling us to. And I think he wants us to pay attention. So the question becomes, what is it that Israel did? What is he talking about? Well, as I mentioned, he's quoting from Psalm 95. And that psalm refers back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. You see, what happened was the people of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. God had seen them, seen him. They had seen God move the waters aside. They had seen God cause the army of the Egyptians to be drowned in the sea. They had begun to move toward Mount Sinai. And while they were on the move, they were grumbling against the Lord. They were grumbling against God. And instead of saying, God, we are so thirsty. Can you please provide something? They went to Moses and they said, we were better off in the other place. You need to give us some water. Just their attitude was rebellious and hurtful. Psalm 95 calls that time. He says, specifically, here the writer of Hebrews calls it testing in the wilderness. But in Psalm 95, it literally says, he refers to the name that it was given. And that is Massa or Massah, which means testing. And Meribah, which means quarreling. And rather than seeking the Lord and graciously asking for provision, they demanded it. And that was their first point of rebellion against God. And so over the course of the next couple of years, they continued to desire to turn away from God. They continued to, to reject the goodness of what God was doing. And so the, the writer of Hebrews gives us this, this encouragement in, in Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 to 13. It says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What was the sin of the Israelites? Some would say it's unbelief. They refused to believe the word of the Lord. But I think it's important for us to realize that sin in all of its form has a way of deceiving us pulling us away from the best and truest that God intends for us. The temptations of this world promise rest, but only manage to deliver temporary satisfaction. He's used that word hardening. Don't harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness. And he's not talking about a medical condition like arteriosclerosis, a hardening of the arteries. 
But spiritually speaking, it, it's the same sort, of our, same sort of equivalent. Because, you see, when we have arterial sclerosis, what happens is because of things that are happening in our bodies, high cholesterol, obesity, various other things, the blood vessels are damaged and they begin to harden up. And they don't have the pliability that they need to have, the pliability that God has created in them. And so we, we eventually see a constricting happening until all at once we find that we've now had a heart attack. I think there's a parallel, though, here. Let's think about this for a, from a couple of perspectives. We run into this challenge today where people are leaving the faith for a variety of reasons. And some people, I think, feel that the moral standards of Scripture are too limiting. And so they might say things like, well, if God loves me, then he will let me do this. He will let me sleep with that person. Or if God loves me, he would not have made me the way that I am. If God loves me, why would he have given me attraction for people like me rather than someone else? Or why has God allowed me to be tempted by these vices? Why does God allow me to be so angry all the time? Or some might even say, there are so many good religions out there. How can we know that Christianity is the only way? Isn't that bigoted and narrow-minded? And so if we begin to follow that path, we begin to resent the good plan that God has intended. We begin to resent God himself. And we question who he is and we put ourselves in the place of God saying, well, if God was that way, he wouldn't have done this. Forgetting that God is God and his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours. And so what we find then is as we begin to resent and question God, our souls begin to constrict and, and harden. And now God can't be that way. And rather than being submissive and pliable to the plan that God has intended, we became angry and bitter. Or let's think about it from a perspective of us, followers of Christ. We've, we've yielded to, to what Jesus Christ has done for us. We've accepted his salvation. Now we're walking in, in, in the newness of life. We're walking with one another. And yet I think that that is the people he's talking to. He's talking to us. He's talking to believers. Let's think about this in a couple of areas. What about politically? We assume that our political camp is always aligned with biblical values. We chose this one because when we look at scripture and when we look at our political camp, they seem to line up. And so we're going to do that. So then we can occasionally get ourselves out of whack by thinking that whatever the political camp says, it gets imposed on what scripture says. Whatever this political camp says now gets imposed on scripture rather than allowing Scripture to decide where we stand politically. Because I think we'll find that neither side has all the right answers. Or think about this, in the area of personal freedoms, being an individualistic society, we can easily elevate our personal rights over that which is spiritually or I think congregationally prudent. I want to warn you, my, my public speaking teacher in high school said, never give a disclaimer. I'm about to give you a disclaimer. If I haven't stepped on your toes up to this point, I'm about to. Let's talk about masks. Oh, those joyous things, masks. 
No, Hebrews does not talk about masks, but it does address the hardness that happens when sinfulness comes into play. Let me just be clear. I hate masks. I hate them. I really do. It causes my face to heat up. When you get all that moisture coming out of my breath and mixed in with this beard, it's just like a hot mess. And then when I wear glasses, it fogs up and I just can't see anything. I'm wearing sunglasses outside. I can't see anything. I don't like how it makes it very difficult for me to hear what you say. I hate that. I've heard and I've read contrary things regarding the effectiveness of of masks. And part of the reason that I got the vaccine back when I did is because I thought, hey, I wouldn't have to wear a mask again. Yay. And that lasted about a month. But that being said, our governing authorities, whether we voted for them or not, have mandated right now that we wear masks indoors in public settings unless you're speaking or presenting. And unfortunately, that means here at church. We've, you know, as, as elders, we try to communicate that about a bit in a few different places. And again, I'm, we've kind of taken the policy. They've said this, but we're not going to be the mask police. They've said we need to wear masks. We're going to wear masks, but we're not going to police anybody. Because there are sometimes, the, the, even the county has said, some people don't need to wear masks. They have health reasons that prevent them from being able to do that. And part of the reason we don't want to turn anybody away is that, as I said, we don't want to be a, the mask police. We don't want to evaluate. Oh, are you one of those careful exceptions? Are you the one who fits into this or that? I'm just, we're just kind of have decided not to deal with it that way. But there are some of us who refuse to wear masks, not because of a health concern, but because we simply disagree. We think the science isn't backed up by it. We think, we think it's political overreach. We think it's bogus. But I want us to think about this. What is the cost? What is the cost? I don't want to bully or coerce, but I want us to think carefully about why we're doing what we're doing. What is the collateral damage to us standing our ground or, or following our personal rights? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 12, regarding food sacrifice to idols. In the Corinthian culture, what would happen is there were a lot of the meat, a lot of the food was sacrificed to idols before it was sold in the marketplace. And so some people, had because, because they had come to faith, because they had come to a point of salvation, they had gained this knowledge, this true knowledge, that idols are nothing. Idol is a piece of wood like this podium. This might have been made as an idol, but it's a thing, it's a piece of wood, it's nothing. And so therefore, food sacrificed to an idol is of no spiritual significance for me whatsoever. But there are others who came up in that system who really saw idols as being something. And so now as Christians, they're looking at that thing and, oh man, someone cannot, cannot eat food that has been sacrificed to that thing. 
Because, oh, that, that is just blasphemy. That is totally against what God had called, called us to. And so Paul kind of addresses this and he says, guys, for those who have the weaker conscience, do this. Look at what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13. He says, but take care that this right, in their case to eat food, or in our case to wear masks or not wear masks, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you have, for if someone sees you who have knowledge eating and eating, eating, sorry. For if someone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so in light of that, let me just kind of tell you where I've landed. I will do my, my very best when it's required of me to wear the mask that I hate in order to keep the brother or sister that I love from stumbling in sin. And so avoid hardening my heart against the word of the Lord and hardening their heart against the word of the Lord. Really, we could pick any number of other personal freedoms, drinking alcohol, smoking, listening to secular music, watching movies, playing cards, any number of other things. And I'm not saying that we can't or shouldn't do those things. I'm just saying that we need to be mindful of how our actions will impact our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is a place, now don't get me wrong, this, this is a challenging road to walk because there are some people who can get so cranked over thinking, well, if I do this, will it affect that person? If I do this in the privacy of my home, how will it affect that? In that don't let that go. Because in that case, it's between you and the Lord. But in public settings, in places like this, we need to be mindful. We need to be careful. And, in, and then, in fact, the writer of Hebrews gives us another helpful command. He says, exhort one another. Essentially, have a conversation. Rather than going home and pouting, oh, I can't stand wearing those masks, or oh, I can't stand that this person isn't wearing a mask, maybe we just go up to them and say, hey, I notice you're doing this or not doing that. Help me understand why. And doing it in grace and love. And not in condemnation, not in judgment. Because I think what happens then is now we have the opportunity to be able to say, hey, you know, when you do that or when you don't do that, I, have, I, I, I might be a weak conscience. I have a really hard time with that. And then it allows us as brothers and sisters in Christ to lay down our personal rights, to lay down our personal freedoms for the glory of God and the edification of one another. So (laughs) the whole point is we need to not 
allow ourselves to, to get into that place of where, where our hearts, our souls are hardening. Because we think we have ground to stand on. The whole point that the writer of Hebrews is getting at is that Moses and then Joshua, he led the people, they led the people of Israel into a promised rest in the promised land. And they could not fully give them what was promised because of sin in the camp. And his exhortation to us is that the rest that Jesus provides is better and is perfect and complete. And he has paid the price of our admission into that rest. So this gets to the last couple of points that I want to just touch on very briefly. How do we enter that rest? How do we enter his rest? Michael Kruger summarizes it this way. He says, first of all, it takes faith. Hebrews 4, 2 through 3 says, for, the, for good news came to, came to us just as to them, came to us as believers, just as it did to the people of Israel back in the day. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, Understand this. The people who were not able to receive the rest that Moses offered could not do so because they were not united by faith. They didn't fully believe that God was leading. They didn't fully believe that God was good enough to take them to the place that he had promised. And for us, Jesus is our uniting faith figure. In order for us to enter his eternal rest, we must trust fully in what he has done on the cross. We must believe by faith that he has paid for our sin. And I pray today that you have trusted in him by faith. We sang about that a a few minutes ago. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Here's the joy of what it is. When we've received Christ's salvation by faith, there is no more condemnation for us. We have no reason to fear judgment from God. We get to boldly come before the throne of grace, as we're going to read later on in the book of Hebrews. We are at perfect peace with God. So we enter his rest by faith. But secondly, we enter his rest through fear. Hebrews 4.1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In a sense... There's a sense in which FOMO or fear of missing out must come into play. You see, God has demonstrated his love for you and me by sending his son as as an apostle and as the ultimate high priest. And if we don't allow Jesus to represent us before God, then we are missing out on that eternal rest. If we think that, well, I'm going to get to the end of my life and my good deeds and my bad needs are going to be on a scale and I'm just hoping that it's going to balance it, the scale doesn't exist. The scale is not there. The only way to get there is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're fearful at all of missing out on the goodness of God, come to Jesus. Come to him. But then there's one other thing that the, the writer of Hebrews talks about, and that is fight. Hebrews 4.11 says, Therefore, let us therefore strive or fight to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
As I mentioned, that word strive has the connotation to fight or, or to be diligent. And I don't think he's saying that we must fight to earn our salvation, but rather we must fight against our own inclination to rebel. We must fight diligently against our own desire to be disobedient. He continues in the next verse, which we may know very well. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as we allow the word of God to permeate our hearts and our minds, if we remain softened to its movement, it will cut through the social, political, cultural, and sinful clutter of our lives in order that we might be the men and women that God has called us to be. Jesus is greater than Moses because of his person, because of his ministry, because of the eternal rest that he has provided. The question is, will we follow the path of some of the Israelites and rebel? Or will we keep the sclerosis out of our spiritual veins and strive to think and act in a way that is fully honoring to God? Let's pray. God, when we come before you, when we open your word, it is sometimes hard to align our lives with you. So God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to honor you. Help us to be malleable to be humble, allow our souls to be pliable in your hands so that you might fashion us into the likeness of your Son. And so be fully honored as we gather, so be fully honored as we worship, be fully honored as we live our lives in the community that you've called us to. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. While the band is coming up, I want to just encourage you. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, if you don't understand what all this means, let's have a conversation this week. Let's talk about it because there are so many good things that God has for you. But I also want to encourage you. If I have offended you, that was not my intention. My hope is that we might be the men and women of God, that we might encourage and exhort one another while it is today, so that there may be no division among us, so that we might be united fully by faith. Let's stand together as we close our time.